Please make your way in your Bibles to the last chapter in what is the last book of the New Testament as we continue on our series in Revelation. Our sermon text for this evening will be in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. And these are the words of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you are the God who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. And our scripture tonight is living testimony of that truth. Oh, the things that you have prepared for us. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would be rooted in Christ, built up on Christ, even as we look to the day when we shall see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the greatest epic poems of all time is John Milton's Paradise Lost, and epic is certainly the right word for it, as the poem is over 10,000 lines in length, over 10 books in length, and is regarded as one of the finest poems in the English language. And, as the name implies, the poem is about Adam and Eve in paradise, and Milton is musing on how they lost said paradise. But what is maybe slightly lesser known is that Milton wrote a sequel to Paradise Lost entitled Paradise Regained, a poem that just as the name implies, unfolds how Christ as the second Adam regains all that that first Adam had forfeited. And there very much is a sense in which you could consider our section of Scripture tonight as a snippet of John's version of Paradise Regained that packed into these five verses with imagery of a tree of life, of the river of life, of the cursed removed, and most of all, with beholding God face to face. We could easily think of this as John's apocalyptic vignette of paradise regained. And so we'll walk through the text tonight looking at two simple sections. Firstly, the tree of life, followed by the light of life. But really, above all, the main point to consider this evening is simply to marvel, to be in awe of paradise 
regained through our Lord Jesus Christ. So starting in verse 1, you'll see John is firstly shown this, quote, river of the water of life, clear as crystal. Now, rivers are of no small importance in the Bible. As the psalmist says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And why so glad? The psalmist says, for God is in the midst of her. In Ezekiel, you might have remembered when we read Ezekiel out loud, there is that great vision of that river of increasing depth that flows out of the temple. And we read that wherever that river goes, everything will live. Spiritually speaking, this is what every believer experiences now, but in part. For to have the Spirit of Christ is to have rivers of water springing up in you into eternal life. You might remember Jesus with that promise to the woman at the well that upon belief she would have resurrection waters welling up in her unto eternal life. But here in Revelation, it's as though we see the ultimate river of life coming from the ultimate temple. As verse 1 proceeds, as it says, it's coming directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. As if John is unfolding for us the fullness of that reality, that believers shall be transported to the very fount, to the very source of salvation before the throne of God. But there's more. We see this river waters this tree of life, as the Bible is but ending where it began. And so, kids, simple question. Do you remember? What was that tree Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat of in the garden? Just shout it out. The tree of? I think I heard it through the murmuring. Yes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And kids, there was another tree, right? What was the other tree in the garden? It was the tree of? Yeah, very good. All right, so these are our two trees. And you remember that those rivers flowed out of Eden to water those trees. And so if rivers are important in the Bible, equally so are trees. And someone who loves trees, I had the greatest of disappointments a couple of years back and that had this great red oak tree and had watered it, had fertilized it, carefully planted it, watched it grow and grow. And it's about, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years old at this point. And lo and behold, one of our great Texas storms blows through. And what seems like this axe made out of wind just comes and chops this tree down, snaps it like a twig right in half. And I look back and think, my tree didn't have the, the maturity, didn't have the roots. It wasn't established enough to withstand opposing forces. And you certainly need to see that this tree is the very reverse of that. It is the established tree. It is as if that tree in Eden has fully grown up, fully matured. As verse 2 says, it stretches out over either side of the river, right there on Main Street. It's accessible to everyone. No one will think, oh, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if you catch my meaning. No, this is an all-access tree with low-hanging fruit for all the saints. And I want to unfold at least three ways you can see the arboreal awesomeness of this tree. Firstly, it is an abundant tree. Verse 2 says it bears 12 kinds of fruit. So no fear of famine. This is fruit to feed the entire church, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as if the blessing of Abraham has fully sprouted with fruit for all. Secondly, 
It is a perennial tree unlike any other. This tree is always in season. As verse 2 says, it yields its fruit each month, year-round production. As someone who loves gardening, I just read that and I think, what a thought. Year-round harvest. I know for me, every time I harvest, I think of it as, as a kind of death. And you have to wait until the next season for another resurrection to begin, but not here. This is perpetual, all-the-time resurrection life. Thirdly, not only is it an abundant tree, not only is it perennial, it is a healing tree. As verse 2 says, it is for the healing of the nations. Now, in our modern day, we don't think of leaves as, as healing, but certainly in the ancient Near East, leaves such as eucalyptus or maybe frankincense were renowned for their healing properties. So here we see this devastation, disease of sin cured by the leaves of this holy tree. And so you can put all that tree data together, and you do get this rich symbol of spiritual vitality, of perfect shalom, of consummate fellowship with the triune God. And hopefully by now, you ought to be saying, I want that tree. I want that tree. For this was in many ways the goal of Adam and Eve. This was what held out to them that they might make progress and enter into an everlasting bond of life with their God in perfect fellowship. And of course, their hope was a paradise lost, ruined, forfeited by sin. They are exiled out of the garden. You might remember that angel with that flaming sword guarding specifically the path back to that tree of life. And so what does Revelation reveal to us? that worthy is the lamb who is slain, that the lamb of God underwent that sword of fiery judgment, that Christ as the second Adam is the only one qualified to regain access for us, and that he gives us access to the tree of life by himself hanging on a tree of death. And indeed, what double glory of the Lord Jesus, that he not only brings us to the tree of life, but that he himself is that very tree of life. That he is the life-giving tree for all the nations. That he is the one who heals us of all of our diseases, who removes from us all of our sins. He is the one whose leaf does not wither as he lives by the power of an indestructible life. And so in that sense, the sermon really is inappropriately titled Paradise Regained. It is not simply Paradise Regained. It is paradise improved. Do see that this is far more glorious, more abundant, more excellent than what was held out to Adam and Eve. And how could it not be? This is eternal life with the glorified, resurrected Christ. It is better than Eden. And lastly, for this section, just as important as what is present in this paradise regained is what is absent. If there's one thing that our current cancel culture has got exactly right, is that there are things that should be and ought to be canceled. Now, everything after that, cancel culture gets monstrously wrong because it does take tremendous wisdom and power and authority to cancel justly and righteously Something, of course, the current culture is found wanting in, but you see that refreshing truth 
applied to God's prerogative alone in verse 3 when it tells us that what has been canceled is none other than the curse. That the same God who sovereignly instituted that curse is the same God who has removed it. As verse 3 says, things accursed are no more. And what is the result? But with the weakness of sin removed, the encroachments of sin removed, what is ours to do? But to worship the living God forever and ever and ever. And so there is an all too brief word on the tree of life, which I trust you see is just an apocalyptic way of showing us our rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. And continuing that thought, let us now go to the light of life in verses 4 through 5. Now, light, of course, is, is vital for eyesight. You can't see in the dark, and one of the great effects of sin upon us is our darkened vision. Our ethical eyesight is, is skewed, it's distorted, such that we can no longer see things clearly or, or rightly. We have a chronic eye disease such that when we look at that which is good and right and true to our vision, it's a little skewed. Like when Eve was deceived, that she takes the food and she sees that it's good for food and a delight to her what? To her eyes. To her, it seemed good and right to disobey. And that is the sway of sin over us. That man can look at the eye chart and sincerely call good, evil, and evil, good. It's, of course, even worse than that, isn't it? Because the most climactic consequence of our depraved, deficient eyesight is that we cannot see God. That man cannot see God face to face and live. That as God dwells in unapproachable light, as he is of pure eyes and can behold evil, as we are of vile eyes, the very best we get is something like Moses, who sees but the back of God. And I wonder if you have ever thought just how truly sad that is. I mean, there is a genuine sense in which until you have seen someone, face-to-face. You don't fully know them. If there's one thing that COVID quickly exposed, it was our human need for face-to-face. As if the whole world suddenly remembered, oh, there's something deeply personal and intimate. When I see your face, and you see my face. The Greek even has a word that is sometimes translated as face, and that same word is sometimes translated as person as if to underscore just how related the two are, how personal it is to see one's face, and how much more so, how much more so when it comes to the living God, that at best we see through a glass darkly as we walk by faith and not by sight. I hope you see that's why that ironic blessing is such a big deal. What a blessing to say that the Lord would make his face shine upon you. Really, me, a sinner. God would lift up the light of his countenance upon me. In that regard, Christian, I do hope that those words of verse 4 are not mere words to you. I do hope those words of verse 4 come to you as a balm to your soul, as the most precious of promises, as an enduring hope. Can this really be true of us? They shall see his face. 
that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall see him as he is and so be like him, that we shall see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can it really be? And even more than that, added to that, that this eternal vision is paired with an eternal identity. As verse 4 says, we are marked, claimed with his name upon our forehead. And all oh, the man-made identities that we're so often a slave to. I'm liked, I'm witty, I'm smart, I'm accomplished, so on and so forth. See, all of those gone and only one identity remains. Only one marker remains. Everyone will be an Aaron with holy to the Lord written upon their forehead. And what a glorious picture that that promise that you will see the king in his beauty shall come to pass. And I hope you see how glorifying this is to God. How glorified it is to God that simply by beholding him, God's creatures are made perfectly and permanently blessed. What else is like that? Who else is like that? That simply by beholding him, Well, there is a word on that. And lastly, as we are able to see anything requires light, John tells us that we shall have this perpetual vision of the Lord with never-ending light to see his face. As verse 5 says, there shall be no more night. A way of saying all that is evil is purged and that the splendor of the majesty of God will be fully manifested. And there will be no need to preach that he is the light of the nations. There will be no need to flip in your Bible to read, he is the light of the nations, because we shall see it with our very own eyes, that God might be all and all. And students, just as an aside, as you're growing in your faith, as you're, you're building out your worldview, let revelation be your reminder that God is the ruler of history. See, Christianity is not a part of history. History is a part of Christianity. And no, you will be told a lie that it's the reverse, that history is just time marching on with random events happening. As Mark Twain once quipped, history is just one darn thing after another. And no, that is not so. See that our God is summing up all things, pulling all things together in the Lord Jesus Christ that God might be all in all. No, history is a part of Christianity. And so as we begin to close, I could put forward but three simple uses from our passage to lay up in our hearts, to ponder in our minds, to prepare us for paradise. And to keep it simple, I'll put it in just three words. Eagerness, enthronement, and endurance. Eagerness, enthronement, and endurance. And so firstly, eagerness. There are some dishes Foods, that is, that their sole function uh, is to be appetitive. And to say something is appetitive is just to say it, it whets your appetite. It gets you excited to eat. And that's its purpose. You're all the more eager to eat. Well, I do hope this section of Revelation, and hopefully all of Revelation to you, has been appetitive. That it boosts your eagerness that you see that the fulfillment of your heart's desire, more than you can even realize, that to see the king in his beauty really is the all-satiating, all-satisfying reality that we are to be eager for. And so, Christian, what do you hope for? 
What is it that you are eager for? And so rest assured that to see him now with the eyes of faith, to see him right now with the eyes of faith is preparatory to see him then on the day that faith gives way to sight and you see him in the fullness of his splendor. Secondly, enthronement. Enthronement. You notice at the very end of this section, verse 5 reads this promise. God's people shall reign forever and ever. And so once again, we go back to Eden. And we remember that their assignment of our first parents was that of kings and queens. They were to take dominion, rule over the earth as God's vice regents. And of course, we know their crowns are knocked off their heads. And our crowns are knocked off our heads. We experience a kind of arrested development. We're stymied by sin, by Satan. But Christ comes as the second Adam, and he regains that dominion, conquering our foes, putting all enemies underfoot. And so through him and by him and in him, God's people regain that dominion forever and ever. But the point I would challenge you with is that training starts today. As is sometimes said, if you're going to be a king, at least start acting like one today. Christian, you will reign forever and ever. So train to reign today. There are strongholds to be destroyed, battles to be fought, dragons to be slayed, disciples to be made, children to be reared. All of it to the glory of God. Train to reign today. And then lastly, thirdly, Endurance, endurance. A couple of months back, uh, a friend and I set out on a, a fairly long, challenging hike uh, up a mountain that proved to be a, a test of endurance, no doubt. And I noticed how for so much of the hike, my, my vision really is just my two feet in front of me or the path in front of me or the back of my companion for so much of it. But every once in a while, we'd get to this clearing in the trees or there'd be a clearing in the skies and you could look up and see, oh, there's the face of the mountain. In my own mystical way, I just thought, wow, that's something else. How encouraging that is. It's as if this vision is summoning us to say, press on, march on. This is where you're going. This is your destination. So Christian, I hope you could see, this is where you're going. March on to Zion. Press on to Zion. And most certainly we know clouds. Dark skies will obstruct that vision for a moment. But look again by faith. Look again by faith. Look again by the eyes of faith to that day that is coming when you will no longer look with the eyes of faith. But faith will give way to sight. And you'll see the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as the psalmist says, only one thing have I asked of the Lord that I may seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to inquire at his temple, to gaze upon the beauty of his temple. And we praise you that your temple has come down, his tabernacle among us. 
and that you have shown us your glory in the person of your Son, that you have given us the promise that we shall see him as he is and so be like him. We pray that we would lay your word up in our hearts and bear its fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.